0: And let's pray again together. God, our Heavenly Father, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. Your word is sure, making wise the simple. Your word is right, rejoicing the heart. Make us pure today through the cleansing power of the Holy Scriptures. Enlighten our eyes so that we might know the clean and the enduring fear of the Lord. Through your presence with us today, may your word be to us sweeter than honey. We pray that you'd instruct us. We pray that you would warn us, so that we might not be ensnared by presumptuous sins and from hidden faults. And we ask that you would lead us into the blamelessness and into the innocence of the gospel. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our rock, and our redeemer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at First uh, Peter chapter 4 today, verses 1 leading into verse 6, although I'm going to need to pick up verses 5 and 6 next week. We'll look at the first half of this section today uh, in First Peter 4 arm yourself peter says in verse 1 since therefore christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves this is the same message that paul gives to the church of corinth in in uh, 2 corinthians 10:3 paul says to the church at corinth we wage war That is the nature of the church. That is the nature of the disciples of Jesus in the kingdom. We wage war. We don't do it according to the flesh. It's not physical war. It's not bayonet and grenade. It's not military might. But it is war, says Paul, and it's powerful. This is Paul's point. We possess, he says, divine power to destroy strongholds. We wage war. What are the strongholds? Paul says that everything in this life that exalts itself against the knowledge of God is the stronghold that we need to be fighting against. All of our arguments, all of our opinions, all of our conversations, everything, all the trends of society that we see in the news and in film and on TV, inside the church, and outside of the church, everything that seeks to diminish the exalted, magnificent importance of God. And it doesn't take long to recognize that these lofty opinions that seek to diminish God are everywhere, that attempt to make God small, to bring God down to my level, and to erase his claims upon me as his creature and as my creator. The parish council uh, here at Christ Church, which I'm very, very grateful for, this band of brothers. We've been going through very slowly uh, the instruction in faith, which was written by John Calvin in the uh, 16th century. And it's Calvin's summary of the Christian faith, which he wrote when he was 27 years old. And it's magnificent. And when he opens up, to talk about what Christian theology is all about. I love what he says. He says that this is how the world, at large, approaches God. Listen to Calvin. He says, they turn away from the true God because they estimate God not by his infinite majesty but by the foolish and giddy vanity of their own mind. What a curmudgeon, you say, was Calvin. What a grumpy guy. What a, what, a, what, a, what a sourpuss his gainsayers say. But you see what John Calvin is doing as he talks about how the world approaches God. He's simply repeating Paul. The natural mind, the human mind without grace, raises itself against the knowledge of God. In pride, it vaults human importance, and it doesn't necessarily eliminate God. That's not what Paul's saying, and that's not what Calvin is saying, but it brings God down from his exalted height, it does not estimate God by his infinite matchless majesty. And as an aside, I'd like to say something here very important. There is a vast, vast difference between the, the, the Hebrew theologian who dared not even utter the syllables of Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, who couldn't even speak the letters because it was so magnificently holy. And the preacher who tells a joke about Jesus and Moses on the golf field. We are slipping dangerously into an era and a time when we've forgotten the majesty and the excellence of God. Sin will always make little of God. Sin will always raise itself against the knowledge of God. And bring God down to our own level. And so what is our warfare in the church? Peter says, arm yourself. Paul says, we wage war. What is our warfare? It is to dismantle low thoughts of God. Every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God. We wage war, says Paul, against these things. And we have power to do it. We're not just spinning our wheels out there. We're not just flailing our arms little kind of, my, my kids will have a cardboard sword once in a while that they'll cut out from a box and they'll run around the house with this sword It's kind of flopping everywhere. That's not the nature of our warfare here. We have power, Paul, Paul says, divine spiritual might to, to dismantle these strongholds, these corrupt ways of thinking to bring men and women and indeed children to the obedience of Christ, so that we recognize the magnificence of God, the godness of God, as Karl Barth might say. And so in this life we can wage war with expectation. It's not our cleverness, it's not our polished rhetoric, it's not our market research, it is the divine power of the gospel. The gospel is God's power unto salvation. And so Peter, in 1 Peter 4 here, picks up this vocabulary of the fight and he tells us to arm ourselves. We must prepare ourselves for war. And he goes on to describe this war a little more clearly in verses 1 or 2. What is this war got to do with? Well, it's a war with how you're thinking, just like Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 10. Arm yourselves, Peter says, with the same mind. Now, he's picking up what he said in chapter 3 about being of one mind. And he says now again, arm yourself with a way of thinking. Of a way of thinking about yourself and a way of thinking about the world. Well, Peter, what kind of thinking is that? He explains it here. It is bringing our thoughts, how we view the world, what we deem is important. Our goals, our dreams, our aspirations, our reason for getting up in the morning, and our confidence for laying our head on the pillow at night. Everything that we are, bringing it all back to the center of everything, which is Jesus Christ on a cross. The cross, says Peter, bring yourself back. So 1 Peter 4, 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Let your mind and your thoughts come back, always in everything, to the cross of Jesus Christ, for it alone is the grand interpreter of your life. It alone makes sense of everything that we do. It is the great Rosetta Stone of the human civilization. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with this thought, the cross. Let the cross dominate your mind. Let the cross shape your values. Let the cross cancel your dreams and raise up better ones. Let the cross of Christ define who you are. Isn't this exactly what Paul said in Galatians 2? I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer Paul that lives, but it's Christ who lives in Paul. Who's Paul? Who's Paul the Apostle? Paul is most Paul when he grasps the truth that it's not about Paul, it's about Christ. Now this is the thing that the world just cannot understand. This is the paradox that the world refuses to grasp. They will teach us over and over again, inside and out, in all kinds of ways, that value comes from finding yourself. True value rests in self-discovery. The Bible teaches us that the only way forward is finding ourselves when we give ourselves away. This is the paradox that the world can't accept. That I am most myself when I am least my own. That I am most John when there's the, the least of John about me and the most of Christ. That my individuality is most distinct when I give myself most wholly to the great community of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. I am most myself when I give myself myself away and I identify myself with the cross this is why Luther thought that the the theology of the cross it's not the cross is a component of our theology it's not that the cross is a component of our thinking the cross he says is our theology the cross is our thinking it is the only way to think about ourselves it is the center of it all that I don't belong to myself, but in body and soul, in life and in death, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I am His. I am not my own. I am not my own. You are not your own. You have been purchased with a price by the Lord on a tree. And Peter's saying to us today, you need to arm yourself in this life with that type of thinking, the suffering of Christ needs to shape how you think about yourself and how you think about your world. And so let me ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, dear loved ones, is the cross of Christ at the center of your life? Is the cross of Christ shaping how you understand Reality. I have a great fondness, I admit, for uh, Norse mythology. I love reading it. I, I will just go back. Part of it is because I'm, as my grandmother would be delighted to say, I am 51% Norwegian, and uh, so I, I love to go back. And there's a rich, colorful, delightful kind of narrative in Norse mythology. And they had a an idea of what was at the center of all reality. There were nine worlds in Viking myth, and of those nine worlds, they were all linked together by Yggdrasil. They were all linked together by the tree. The tree was at the center of it all. And in that old myth, I see dreams and aspirations for divine truth, glimmers of God hanging on the cross. At the beginning, the center of everything is the cross of Christ. It is the only thing that can make sense of our world. It's the cross. And until we identify with this, until we identify with the truth that he bore our sins on a tree, and we find ourselves in that, we are walking in shadows. We are walking in non-reality. We've, we've needed to get tapped into the great reality, the center of the tree. We walk around not knowing what things are up and what things are down. It is the cross alone that can make sense of our lives. And so Peter says, arm yourself with this thought. And then he follows on, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, one of the important rules of good biblical interpretation as we try to interpret the Bible faithfully is uh, starting by determining what a verse cannot mean. We need to begin by determining what a verse cannot be. And admittedly, this is a verse that can get us into a lot of trouble. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Centuries and centuries of monasticism took this verse and taught that if I can just suffer enough, if I can just afflict myself enough, if I can whip myself enough, If I can wear enough hair shirts, if I can penalize my body enough, then maybe I might be free from sin. Right? Luther tried this for years and he already killed himself. He was out sleeping in the snow and doing all kinds of terrible things to his body till his brothers had to drag him inside and revitalize him. He just couldn't do enough to punish his body to get rid of his sins. But of course it's not about making ourselves suffer. We do not free ourselves from sin by punishing the body. That's not how it works. That's simply nullifying the grace of God, as Paul might say. So what does Peter mean here? He means that those who have identified with the cross of Christ and the suffering of Jesus so that they are willing gladly to face the persecution and the afflictions of the world which exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Those who are willing, because of the cross, to lose friends, To face the wrath of family members who are willing to swim against the stream of this age, whoever is willing to suffer like this because of the cross, these are the people, and these are the people alone who have ceased from the sin of this age. And Peter is not talking about sinless perfection here. We know that, right? We know that the Apostle John says, Whoever says they have no sin, they're a liar. And the truth is not in him. Peter's not talking about sinless perfection. But Peter means here that if the cross has defined us, if we have identified ourselves with the death of Jesus and there's a willingness in ourselves, there's a readiness in ourselves to suffer for the sake of the gospel, then we are no longer slaves to the thinking of this world. We're no longer bound to that kind of thinking. And that kind of thinking explains here in verses 2 to 3. All of it, all of this debauchery, the flood of human passions, drunkenness, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, all of these things that are distinguished from doing the will of God. That's the most important thing here. The human world wants nothing to do with the will of God. It's all about themselves. All of that thinking that raises itself against the knowledge of God We will not have God to rule us. We will not have God to rule us. And that can be in lawless partying. That can be in drunken debauchery. That can be in orgiastic experience. Or that can be in the pursuit of self-righteousness. I will make it on my own. Like the Stoic philosophers. I will be moral. I will be virtuous. I will live a good life on my own. I do not need a God who hung on the tree. Either way, the world seeks to diminish God. But Peter says those who have so identified with the cross that they're willing to cast in their lot and suffer for it. Those are they who have escaped the passions of this age. See, the way of the cross and the life of the cross is bringing the mind And the heart back to Paul's phrase, that God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. The cross makes me live to God and the cross alone. And so let me ask you you this morning, church and loved ones, is this the thought that dominates your life? Is this, as Peter says, the thought that is arming you as you go out day by day to live in this world? That God may be all in all. Is it the cross that shapes your life? Is your life shaped by high and exalted and exceedingly glorious thoughts of God? Do you have the liberty and the freedom to say to yourself, My greatest aim is to love God with all of my heart. There's no other way for you except for the cross to get there. And so I want to invite you this morning as we approach the the table today, I want to invite you again. Perhaps you've done this long ago and you need to do it again. Perhaps you've never done it before. I invite you to the cross. I invite you to let it shape you, to let it define you, to make it the one thing that is the center of your life as you come forward today to partake of bread and of wine. Give yourself away. Give yourself away and give your life to Christ. Let him define you. Let him shape you so that God may be all in all to you. And let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the cross of Christ. Lord, in all of us today, may this be the one thing that shapes and defines who we are, that the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon a tree for us to reconcile us to God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.